We are going to be in John chapter 11 and 12 today, beginning at verse 45 of John chapter 11 through to verse 8 of chapter 12. If you listen as well as you were singing, you will be a sanctified bunch uh, leaving church today. That's my opinion. Uh, So... Uh, Hear the word of the Lord, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priests that year said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with, his, with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying, To one another, as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Well, let us ask God to bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father, please now open up your word to us with clarity and conviction, with hope, with all of the promises that are ours in Christ Jesus. Allow us to be thrilled by the truth and only the truth. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if I look a little bit more miserable than usual, it's because my kids are off for spring break and that's two weeks at home to give those teachers uh, a, a well-earned rest. 
And this past Friday, uh, my boys had some nefarious characters over, uh, local lads, which you don't want to meet in a back alley on a dark night. And uh, my wife had the wonderful suggestion that I should take them to uh, play basketball at the local rec center to burn off their energy. And I thought, yes, I will do that, and then I'll come home and there'll be some peace and quiet. I can read, I can get some work done, because they will have burned their energy off. And we went and had a good time uh, as I watched them play basketball, and I talked to an elderly lady about her life and her plans and everything else. And uh, then after they says, well, we want to go to 7-Eleven for a Slurpee. And being the softy that I am, I thought, okay, we'll have all a small Slurpee. But I didn't realize on Friday it is the day where you can bring any size jug for 250 and fill it up. And as we got into 7-Eleven, these boys are pulling out these massive jugs and I start to have a cold sweat come over me because uh, this is not going to work out well as I try to implore them to go for the small little Slurpee rather than the jugs they had packed in their backpack. Now, this is all to say that they filled them up. In fact, Thomas somehow managed with the plastic lid on top to fill even the plastic part up. And I suspect that his picture will be up in 7-Eleven. Do not allow this person back in uh, to fill up Slurpees. That's my dad now at the local Indian buffet who isn't allowed back in, and now my son Thomas. So they have their Slurpees. Do you think when I came home that I got the peace and quiet that I was yearning for? No, I did probably the worst thing anyone could do with young boys. I allowed them to have copious amounts of sugar in the form of a Slurpee. Now, what does that have to do with the sermon, you ask? That's a good question. I don't begrudge you for asking, what does this have to do? Well, I want you to think about the fact that Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. He has said, I am the resurrection and the life. And the way they are going to defeat this person who has the power over death is by killing him. They are going to really sort this man out by killing him. He's just raised Lazarus from the dead. Imagine you're about to fight Popeye and you say, have some spinach. You don't understand the stupidity of humanity when they have lost their minds. They are on display for you right here. And this is really what ends up happening. Look at how the Jews, many of whom believed in him in verse 45. Many of the Jews believed in him. He'd opened the eyes of the blind. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. It's incontrovertible now at this point that he is from God and people are recognizing this. But some of them are snitches. Verse 46, some think, oh no, this is harmless. But it's really meant to be a contrast, I think. They go to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They're not going to open-minded individuals who are seeking the truth. They're going to say, hey, look at what's going on here. How are we going to stop this man? And you see that's the net effect of that because of what happens after that. Now, uh, I want you to just pause for a second and think about how the chief priests and the Pharisees in verse 47 are gathered and they say, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? Now, what is the answer to that question? What are we to do for this man performs many signs? Is not the answer to that we are to believe in him? But instead, they seek to kill him. 
Should they not fall down at His feet and worship Him? Yes. But instead they do the opposite. And it's sheer lunacy, this logic. Because they say in verse 48, if we let Him go on like this, everyone will believe in Him. This is a horrible thing. He's performing signs that have never been done since the beginning of the world. And if we let Him continue like this, people will believe in Him. And here's the problem. They are going to show their hand now. They are enjoying a degree of protection under Roman rule. They are allowed to worship in the temple. They are allowed to not uh, obey the other rules upon the Gentiles where they have to worship Roman gods and say Caesar is Lord. They have a certain type of protection and they want to keep that at all costs. Now, if this movement gets too big, the Romans are going to see that it's arising from within the Jewish people and they're going to then take away the privileges that these people enjoyed. That's why they're concerned. So, one of them in verse 49, an absolute egomaniac. That's not in the original Greek, by the way. <laughs> That's, uh, if I was writing the message, I would say, uh, Caiaphas, an absolute egomaniac. Who was high priest that year? He had been high priest for... Uh, Scholars believe about 18 years, which is an exceedingly long time. He was obviously a very shrewd politician. Nobody stays in power for 18 years unless they know how to play the system well. Now, notice that he's not lacking any confidence, this gentleman. You know nothing at all. Uh, that's a lot of bravado, isn't it? Uh, to say to all these religious people, you know nothing at all. And you see, pride comes before a fall before destruction. There's a sort of uh, humorous irony here going on. And there's all sorts of things that John does in his gospel that show this. What is this humorous irony? Well, he is telling them they know nothing at all and he is now about to utter, unbeknownst to him, one of the most glorious truths about Jesus Christ that has ever been uttered by a human being. And he doesn't know it. What is this grand truth that he tells them that he doesn't know what he's saying? Nor do you understand. So you know nothing at all, and you don't understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. I mean, that is a stunning summary of the Gospel. And he doesn't know. In fact, so impressed is John by this irony that in verse 51 he says he did not say this of his own accord. So he doesn't even realize that what he's saying is actually a sort of inspired prophecy. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So here's his advice. It's better for Jesus to die than that you should perish and to which we, if we were all Baptists, would say, Amen. You, you also can say it in your heart. Now, from that day on, they made plans to carry out Caiaphas's wonderful plan. And this is uh, really illustrative of Peter in chapter 4, where he says, you know, you put him to death with the hands of lawless men. You did what God's 
foreknowledge had decided beforehand should happen. So Jesus no longer <clears throat> walks openly, and the gospel rushes now to the last few days of his life, taking up roughly almost half of the gospel just with the last few days of Christ's life. But they are wondering, what's going to happen? Will he come to the feast? And um, they now begin the process of trying to find him so that they might arrest him. This then leads to Jesus going to Bethany. And so you see in chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Now, if this chapter is connected to the previous, which it is, and they are seeking to arrest Jesus, there's, this is an act of sort of bravery, putting on this public dinner. And there are a number of individuals there. There is Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Jesus, and we're told in the other Gospels, they're at the home of Simon the leper. And then you have the twelve apostles. So you have at least those individuals there, perhaps more. And they are sitting there. And this is quite interesting because you have a dead man who is now alive, and you have a living man who will soon be dead. And you wonder what the dinner conversation must be like with Jesus present. Certainly not boring. Simon the leper saying, well, I used to be a leper, but I was cleansed by Jesus. And Lazarus saying, well, uh, I was dead, <laughs> and here I am. Uh, and you could see them marveling at all of the wondrous things that Jesus has done, going into towns and curing illnesses, re reminiscing on the wedding at Cana, and going through his signs, the man born blind, and, and who knows what else they were talking about. But there's something quite interesting about why John writes this. Why are they seeking to arrest Jesus? And the answer is given in chapter 12. Because there are people who are utterly devoted to him. If Jesus went around and nobody paid any attention to him, ignored him, it wouldn't matter. But the problem is, people are not only believing in him, but people are doing extravagant things towards him, and he is getting the sort of worship that is appropriate only to one who would be the Messiah. So, in chapter 11, we read of the odor of Lazarus, who has been dead four days. And now in chapter 12, you're going to read of a different type of odor, a fragrant offering in the nostrils of God. Now, see Mary in verse 3. She takes a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair. When you read of Mary... So far, you find out that she has sat at His feet before. She has fallen down at His feet over the sickness and death of Lazarus. And now she is pouring ointment upon His feet. Mary is always at the feet of Jesus. And she is doing something that is most shocking. In fact, a number of things. Firstly, she is taking her hair out, which was considered an unseemly thing for a Jewish woman to do in public, but such is her extravagant love that she almost loses sight of the fact that anyone else is there. 
The other thing that she does is she takes a pound of expensive ointment from pure nard. This is a very rare type of perfume that probably would have come from northern India, scholars believe, and uh, it is so rare that it would cost an exceedingly uh, great amount of money. In fact, we find out that it is roughly equivalent of 300 days' wages for a common laborer. Now, some of you young people don't know how difficult it is to actually save money on top of what you make. So if you make a certain amount of money, you don't make that money in a sense. You only sort of save what's left over from what. So imagine having 300 days of savings in a container. 300 days of savings in a container. How valuable that is to be able to have saved that. And she pours it out upon the feet of Jesus. It's absolutely shocking. And I think as you keep on reading, you need to understand that as the house is filled with the fragrance of perfume, and you remember Isaiah in chapter 6 as the threshold of the temple shook and it was filled with a type of smoke and incense that filled the temple and Isaiah says woe is me I'm undone I have seen the Lord and John tells us in chapter 12 verse 41 Isaiah said these things because he saw Christ's glory here Mary sees Christ's glory and she worships in the only way she knows how giving him the best now notice the response Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? I think we can all safely agree that if we did not have before us the following words given to us by John and the interpretation given by Jesus, that if we're being honest with ourselves, we might sympathize with Judas at this point. Do you think about it? Such a lavish gift. Why not just take a little bit of perfume out? You know, this morning I thought, you know, I'm preaching on this. I'm going to get some cologne. Darren Jones once gave me some nice cologne. Yes, Darren, you did. Don't deny it. And I went to my special place and I sprayed it on and I thought I better not be around my wife. She hates when I wear cologne. But love to Darren at that point superseded on this one occasion love to my wife's nostrils. Now, we probably think, hang on now. You could have you could have actually done something good with this. And that's what Judas says. Now, you need to understand something about Judas. He has already been described by John as a devil in chapter 6. He is a hypocrite when you go further on in chapter 13, verse 18. He's the son of perdition in chapter 17, verse 12. But here he is an outwardly moral person. And what he says is utterly reasonable from one perspective. It's a faithless perspective, but don't miss this. You're living in a world where there is a lot of this going on right now. People are doing things and saying things and they are trying to take on the appearance of righteousness. 
NHL hockey, anyone who's even somewhat aware of the news, you don't wear a pride jersey in the warm-up. You're the bad guy. You're the one who doesn't love. You're the one filled with hate. You're the one who has to be tarnished all over social media and in the news and have articles written about you because you don't want to wear a pride jersey because you're a Christian. And who are the reasonable people? The accepting people. The so-called loving people. The people who have hearts like Judas. The appearance of righteousness. When the Lord is the one who dictates what is good and what is beautiful and what is right and what is honorable, not the world. And Judas, who heard all of Christ's sermons, Judas, who likely prayed with Christ, Judas, who cast out demons along with the other apostles, comes across up until this point, in the first recorded words of Judas in the Gospel as caring for the poor. Don't miss this. He's a hypocrite. And guess what? Nobody knew. At that point, nobody knew. The disciples didn't all gather around and say, come on now, Judas. What she has done is a beautiful thing. It's called a beautiful thing in Mark chapter 14. We'll get to that a bit later. But, They didn't all rebuke him. In fact, when you read the other gospel accounts, it seems as though the other disciples agreed with Judas. So when Jesus rebukes them, it's in the plural. He may have been the spokesman. And nobody knew. Because that's what defines a hypocrite. You don't know that they are a hypocrite. They have the language... They have the outward service. He was the treasurer. They have the status. He was an apostle. And yet, he knew nothing of the love of Christ. Nothing. So then John tells us, he said this not actually because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He sees how valuable that was and how as treasurer, perhaps if he'd been given care of that nard, he could have sold it and he could have taken a little bit for himself. And shockingly, it wasn't much later that he would actually sell Jesus for 120 denarii. Not even half of what had been poured out upon Christ's feet. Now, Jesus rebukes him. Leave her alone. Now, before we get to Christ's words, I want you to consider one other thing. Would Mary not have heard those words by Judas? Think about, she's doing this loving thing towards her Savior, where she's sort of lost sight of the fact of what she's doing by wiping her with her hair, his feet. And the first words that probably came out of somebody's mouth was, what she is doing is a horrible thing. Making her feel guilty. Shows how wicked this man was. Here she shows love, and yet it's interpreted publicly as wickedness. 
you know, I didn't like Judas before today, but I thought about that. I woke up this morning a bit early, and then I was like, oh, well, should I fight my way back to sleep? You know, it's always a battle one faces in the morning sometimes. You're up, you go, oh, I don't know. If I really put my mind to it, I can do it and get back to sleep. And then you feel awful when you actually do get back to sleep and have to really wake up. But I was lying there and I was just thinking about how Mary would have felt hearing these words come out of Judas's mouth. And I'm so thankful that Christ immediately steps in. Leave her alone. She is preparing me for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor with you. But this is a unique event in all of redemptive history. My burial is about to take place and she is showing love for me. Now, what can we say by way of application? I just want to ask a few questions. What if Mary had kept the nard in the bottle? What would have happened? We could say, well, maybe eventually a, a number of people would have smelt nice for a day. That's one interpretation. Someone might have used it eventually and, you know, walked around the streets of Jerusalem smelling nice for a day. I mean, that would just been such a helpful thing for society. But we also would have missed out on the fact that not only was she preparing Jesus for his burial, but that the beautiful thing done to Christ would not have been done. Because in Mark chapter 14, Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Can we just say, this is a, a, a little bit of a diversion in the sermon, but I'm going to take the privilege afforded to me by you right now. Um, can we just stop with the, our works are like filthy rags before God? That is a total misunderstanding of the Word of God. When you do something in faith out of love, for Christ, it is not a filthy rag. It is a beautiful thing. Some people's works become like filthy rags because that's the principle by which they live by. But don't listen to those people who say that. She's done a beautiful thing to me. If she had kept the nard in the bottle, Jesus would not have had a beautiful thing done to him. Now, would she have still gone to heaven if the nard had been kept in the bottle? The answer is yes, of course. But that's missing the point. Of course she would have gone to heaven. She didn't get to go to heaven because she poured out enough ointment upon the feet of Jesus. But this is what the love of Christ does. It constrains us because we've concluded that one has died for all. Therefore all have died so that we may no longer live for ourselves but for Him who gave Himself for us. And so it was the natural outflowing of knowing what the love of Christ does to us. She doesn't do this to get to heaven. She does this because heaven is in her. And you can ask yourself the question, what can you give? And there's two answers. The first answer is nothing. You can't give God anything. You can't give Christ anything. You are in and of yourself utterly bankrupt. And if done apart from faith, if done in the flesh, yes, it is a filthy rag, a menstrual cloth, as Isaiah says before God. But by faith, having received the love of Christ, what can you give? You can give everything. And you know what? I'm so thankful you all agree. Do you know how I know? 
because we sang, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, but drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, give myself away. Tis all I can do. What can you give? Everything. You've said that already. So what do we give for Jesus? It's not that we go home and sell the house and the car and everything and say, there. It's that you are prepared to give something that truly is sacrificial for the sake of Jesus Christ. And it may be for many of you the following. Your time. The time that you find to be able to work. The time that you find to be able to watch television. The time that you find to be able to be looking at social media. The time that you find to play video games. The time that you find to drive here and drive there. The time you find for this, that, and the other might be the time you have to sacrifice to be at the feet of Jesus. It might be your time. It might be that writing a check isn't a big deal for you. But giving your time is. And would be more sacrificial. Or it might be that you're very good with your time, but not with your check. I don't preach a lot on giving. Though I remember a Google review once early on in my ministry, and it was the guy at Faith Baptist Church, by the way. I think they got the Faith Church's because someone left a Google review. That pastor, all he does is preach about money. Someone's showing me, hey, Pastor, yeah, here you're always preaching about money. I said, that's not me. But today I take an exception to that. You can leave a Google review. All he does is preach about money. Yes, if that money is somehow being kept by you in a way that is keeping you from true sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom then yes, that may be something you have to give. It may be a person. Time, money, but I'll tell you the thing that would really, really sting me is a person. A child. A spouse. Or maybe you have a boyfriend or girlfriend. There was a, a pastoral situation I was made aware of recently and it, it really uh, warmed my heart. And... It was uh, a question of whether someone could be in a relationship with another person and this individual was a Christian and sort of started to realize that the other person wasn't really a Christian, wasn't really in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, had made the decision to end it. Because sometimes you're going to be put to the test. Do you trust Christ enough? Do you love Christ enough to trust Him to obey Him, which may mean giving up somebody you apparently think you love because Christ's love comes first. It may be a person. It may be time. It may be money. It may be something else. But you see, with people who don't know the love of Christ, that's a painful thing to consider. I wonder what your thoughts are about the thought of perhaps giving up something sacrificial. Is that a painful thing to consider? It was for Judas because all he did was take. He took, he took, he took, and in the end, guess what? He lost. Mary gave, 
Martha gave, and in the end, they won. And what did God and Christ give? The answer is everything. It's not as though there's one rule for us and one rule for God and Christ. The whole point is that because they have given everything, we can give everything. And there's nothing off limits in our lives which we can't say, here it is, Lord. So in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, and walk in love, because it is really fundamentally about love, as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, and here's something that should marvel you in connection with what we've been saying, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Mary's was a fragrant offering, literally and symbolically. Christ's offering is a fragrant offering to God, a pleasing aroma to God. Christ gave up everything. And God gave up everything. He who did not spare. It depends what angle you look at it. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He gives up his life, a fragrant offering to God. But what does God give up? God is also giving up everything. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not along with Him graciously what? Give us all things. So the Father gives and He gives and He gives. And as Augustine said, when the Father had given the Son and when the Father had given the Spirit, there was nothing else left for the Father to give. Mary gave what she could. Martha gave what she could. God gave all that He could so that you might, out of the abundance of that love, understand something of what it is to sacrifice for the sake of the One who is the true sacrifice in the nose of God. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank You for Your Word and ask that we would understand something of what it is to have an extravagant love for our Savior. Not a love we can manage, but a love that manages us. O Lord, we don't know what will happen in the next hours or days or months or years whereby we will be in a position to make that sacrifice. But we pray that when the time comes, Your love will so fill us that it will not feel as though we are sacrificing, but as though we are simply loving You. Despite what the world will call it, and what the world may think, we pray that we would seek to please You and You alone. For Jesus' sake, Amen.